Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Energy emergency from Beijing to Brussels. Governments face a winter fuel crunch. Taiwan tensions. President Tsai says they won't bow to Chinese pressure and boldly going. Star Trek's William Shatner prepares for blastoff. It's Monday. Let's make a move. And well, welcome to First Move as we buckle up for another busy week ahead. As I mentioned, Star Trek's William Shatner is heading for the final frontier. Anything is possible on this show. It's Freedom Day in Sydney as COVID restrictions disappear. And on Wall Street, earnings season kicks into gear. But will corporate earnings reports allay the inflation fear? I fear not. For now, on Wall Street, we're looking at a softer open following last week's gains with tech. The Nasdaq, as you can see there, about to fall around 1%, not exactly going into warp speed in Europe either. Energy costs, of course, remain the major story for markets and consumers and for business. Brent beginning the week at $84 a barrel. U.S. crude hitting seven-year highs too. Natural gas prices, as you can see, a touch softer there, but we're still sitting at highs not seen for over a decade. China remains a key catalyst again this Monday, with coal futures hitting record highs. Severe flooding in the north of the country has limited mining output there, sparking fresh concerns of power shortages. And that's not the only story in China, though. We saw a big relief rally in Chinese tech stocks in Monday's session, too. Food delivery giant Meituan among them soaring 8% after receiving a relatively mild antitrust fine from Beijing authorities. Rumour has it the tech crackdown may be easing, and that would be a welcome relief, of course, since China's energy crisis is intensifying. Let's get to the drivers. Heavy rain in northern China has shuttered over 60 coal mines just as the government is looking to boost production. On Friday, Beijing ordered mines to increase output as it tries to end crippling power shortages. Coal of course, generates 60% of the energy consumed across China. Selena Wang joins me now and has been looking at all the details on this. And Selena, great to have you with us. As I mentioned, the Chinese government trying to ramp up production at the same time as bad weather, limiting production. Do we know what the net result is? Does it mean less supply or are they going to manage more, at least in the short term? Well, the timing absolutely could not be worse here, Julia. This intensifies a power crunch and complicates Beijing's efforts to ease this energy shortage. This flooding has caused the evacuation of more than 120,000 people. It's caused about 60 coal mines to be closed down in Sanxi province, which accounts for about a quarter of China's coal production. And this then offsets, as you say, some of the steps China has just taken to ease this issue. Just last week, they had ordered 72 coal mines to boost production by about 100 million metric tons. And that accounts for about 30% of China's monthly coal production. But it's unclear, Julia, how fast this output can increase at a time with this power shortage is spreading to most of the country. It's forced governments to ration electricity for some factories to shut down, also disrupting people's daily lives. Some cities have dealt with these total blackouts. And this energy crisis, Julia, in China and in other parts of the world is just another highlight of how hard it is for the world to cut its reliance on fossil fuels at a time when world leaders are trying to tackle climate change. 
Yeah, particularly if you're pushing to more renewables without a plan to transition accurately, as we've discussed now in the past. I saw on Friday that the central government is now allowing uh, coal-powered electricity plants to increase the prices that they're charging by some 20%. I mean, that is a huge jump, but they've got to balance all the priorities here. Um, what else are they doing to try and ease this, this crunch? And um, are they going far enough? What, what's the sense there? Yeah, Julia, in addition to trying to get more coal mines to boost this output, you've also got this change in regulation and allowing these coal-fired electricity plants to increase prices by as much as 20% for what they charge for power is a big deal because electricity prices in China are regulated. So when coal prices rose... Um, many of these power companies were losing money because they couldn't simply raise the prices. So this should help to alleviate the pressure somewhat. But many analysts, including City, are still saying that this energy crunch is going to continue and it could require a 12 percent cut in industrial power use in the fourth quarter. And the question, of course, here is how big the ripple effect is going to be on global supply chains for the global consumer. And of course, how much worse this is going to get for the Chinese consumer, according to local reports in the city of of Iwu. Factories there have been dealing with these widespread power cuts. This is a major deal because Iwu has the world's largest wholesale market for toys, electronics, and many, many other goods. And this could really dampen China's annual shopping bonanzas, their annual Singles Day in November, which brings in tens of billions of dollars for Chinese retailers. So we just have to wait and see how bad this is going to get for people's daily lives, Julia. Yeah, and there's a supply to the rest of the world. It has a ripple effect all around the world as, as well for, for many reasons there, not just the energy cost, but also the output of the products too. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Now, it's a global concern. Europe's natural gas crisis intensifying, while in the UK, businesses are pleading for government help as power prices soar. Some energy suppliers have already folded, hit by rising costs, while the European Commission is set to release their response plan on Wednesday. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, it's interesting, the UK example, because to some degree, the regulators there limit the price increases that can be passed on to consumers. But for businesses, it's a different story. And I think the contrast between what we're seeing from UK business and the support provided to European biz business is um, stark. It is stark. And that's very much the argument we're getting today from multiple sectors. We're getting really a a flood of uh, statements from multiple sectors, whether it's steel or ceramics or glass, all calling for the UK government to do more to help. Yes, these big industrial groups do tend to hedge. They buy up gas contracts long term. But you know what? There comes a point when all that hedging doesn't really help. They need to secure more gas on the markets and they could be paying up to eight times more than they were last year. That doesn't just reduce profits, that wipes it out. That means they could be operating at a loss. And the big risk here, uh, according, for instance, to UK Steel, is that some plants will have to slow down production or cut it altogether. And the consequences of that really can't be underestimated. We're not just talking about that one company and the workforce. We're talking about the supply chain, the fact there'll be less steel going into the supply chains for other businesses, and also the knock-on effect. We saw just last month when an American fertilizer company decided to suspend production of just two plants in the UK, it had huge implications for, for instance, the food and drink sector, which relies on its byproduct of CO2. And that example, we saw the UK government step in with temporary financial aid. And actually today they've said they're actually going to buy the CO2 that that plant produces. But what are they going to do on this much bigger scale when we're seeing businesses across multiple sectors warning the UK government 
they might not be able to keep producing as much as they are. Gas prices are too high. UK Steel points out other governments, as you said, are doing more. So it's time really to see what the business secretary has up his sleeve. Julia? Yes, and quickly, particularly if the EU is going to announce their own plan on Wednesday and uh, further um, draw that comparison, I think, between action and uh, some degree of inaction at this stage. Anna, we shall reconvene on this note on Wednesday ahead of that report. Thank you so much for your your update there, Anna Stewart. And the EU Industry Commissioner is the latest official to reject claims that Poland may exit the European Union. It follows a weekend of protests against what's being called Polexit. Massive crowds rallied in support of the EU amid fears Poland could eventually split with the bloc. Fred Plotkin joins me now. Huge protests and all across the country, Fred. And I know the Prime Minister has Mm. come forth and said, look, this is not part of our agenda. But uh, as Brexit proves, accidents or otherwise can happen. Mm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that international observers are looking at as well, is that, of course, not many people thought that Brexit would actually happen. But you do have a situation in Poland right now uh, where the country is deeply divided and where you do see the Polish government, the very conservative government, uh, at odds with the European Union on really a flurry of topic. If you look, for instance, at freedom of the press and some of the things that have been done with media in Poland, also the justice system, many people saying that it's essentially been brought under the control of the government. And then that verdict by the constitutional court, essentially challenging the primacy of European law. And the opposition does say that they do fear that the ultimate goal of the conservative government is to try and get Poland out of the European Union. And really, when you look at the protests, Julia, it's so interesting uh, to see where they happen and where that turnout was so large. Obviously, you have big cities like Warsaw, you have Gdansk, you have Poznan, you have Szczecin, all of them very big cities, and many of them sort of more towards the west of Poland. That really shows some of the divisions that you see in that country. It's one of cities versus the rural population, which of course is a lot more conservative, and then eastern Poland and western Poland uh, as well. Now, you're absolutely right to say the government has said... Oh, we appear to have lost Fred there mid-flow. We'll just see if we can get him back. Nope, I think he's gone. Oh, well. Um... Yes, apologies for that. But as you said, he was giving us a sense there of the support for remaining in the EU. And of course, that was what's led to the uh, protests over the weekend. All right, let's move on. Taiwan's president has vowed the island will not bow to Chinese pressure, calling out China in a fiery speech on Taiwan's National Day on Sunday. Her comments came just after President Xi Jinping called for reunification with Taiwan on Saturday. Will Ripley joins us with the details now from Taipei. Will, always great to have you with us. Obviously, the message there was, look, we're not going to have any kind of altercation or violence, but the war of words between the two nations, pretty clear here. Even that word reunification, Julia, uh, they they say here in Taiwan, what do you mean reunify? We were never unified. The People's Republic of China, Beijing, hasn't ruled this self-governing island since the end of China's civil war for more than 70 years. They've had their own government, but it's a government that Beijing does not acknowledge. And the United States has this unofficial but very close and deepening relationship with the leaders here in Taiwan. One of the things that's increasing significantly, and it has been since the Trump years, is arms sales. Are these moves potentially provoking Beijing? Taiwan's growing arsenal on full display at this weekend's National Day Parade. 
To defend against a growing threat from China, this small island is spending big on weapons, many made in the USA. F-16 fighters, Patriot missiles, $5 billion in U.S. weapons sold to Taiwan last year. Thank you very much. Taiwan arms sales skyrocketed during the Trump years. The former president's hardline stance against China, one of the few Trump-era policies embraced by President Joe Biden. Defending Taiwan's democracy against authoritarian China has rare bipartisan support. Some worry Washington politics may be provoking Beijing, even pushing Taiwan and the U.S. into dangerous territory. If you do take steps to look like you are aggressively defending Taiwan, then you arguably put them in a more vulnerable position. You arguably, again, irritate China. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen says the island is on the front lines of a much bigger battle. Free and democratic countries have been alerted to the expansion of authoritarianism, and Taiwan is on the forefront of the defense line of fellow democracies. China sent a record 150 warplanes near Taiwan in just five days this month. Biden's balancing act? Calming cross-strait tensions, defending democracy, and preventing a conflict that could cost American lives. I've spoken with Xi about Taiwan. I think Taiwan really presents a challenge to any American presidential administration because you're trying to balance competing interests. This is an extraordinary sight. Four kinds of domestically produced missiles rolling through the capital in front of Taiwan's presidential palace. An ominous sign of escalating regional tensions. We cannot control whether or not the Chinese Communist Party has the ability to attack Taiwan, but we are able to control and make sure it does not have the motivation to do so. Every Chinese leader since Mao has vowed to take control of Taiwan. Analysts say President Xi Jinping may be the first with a military mighty enough to do it, even as he calls for peaceful reunification. Whoever wins Taiwan wins the world. China is locked in territorial disputes across the Indo-Pacific region. Taiwan, Beijing's biggest unresolved issue, and some say Biden's biggest test. And not just a test for the U.S. president, but also for Japan, which is now uh, deploying missiles and troops to its outlying islands that are within 100 miles of Taiwan. Uh, Australia, through the AUKUS partnership, will start to equip uh, its navy with uh, nuclear submarines. The military dynamics of the region are changing as as the People's Liberation Army moves in, you know, and expands into the South China Sea and for the first time really uh, offers a credible threat to U.S. naval and military supremacy in the Indo-Pacific region, Julia. So uh, I think the concern being that, that, that if these uh, U.S. allies don't band together now to protect Taiwan and something were to happen and Taiwan would lose its democracy, then what other small uh, places could be next? Yeah, well, it's so interesting. And, and this is actually quite fascinating, the comments in that, in that piece. A few things, the balancing of competing interests. And you could spin that so many ways, whether it's, to your point, the security, the national security interests, the political interests. And we've seen 
the relationship, particularly between the US and China, under so much pressure in recent years. But also now, I think, and it's come to the fore, the economic interests. And, and the, the gentleman there that said, um, whoever wins Taiwan wins the world. They certainly win the world for semiconductors, which has created a slowdown everywhere in the world. <laughs> and of course, Taiwan is the biggest producer of them. And I think yes. if it did come down to the money and the, uh, the economic interests in protecting Taiwan, we cannot avoid a discussion about this. You read my mind because I was thinking we could do a whole separate piece about not just semiconductors, but Taiwan's position, the first island chain. I mean, strategically, geographically, if China were to take Taiwan, yes, they'd have TSMC, the world's biggest semiconductor manufacturer, hypothetically. They also could place missiles within 100 miles of Japan, uh, Japanese territory, which is something that Japan, uh, you know, which is technically still has a pacifist constitution, but has been slowly building up its uh, defense forces, uh, you know, simply would not accept. Uh, so it's easy to see how a conflict over Taiwan could, could bring in the United States, could bring in Japan, bring in other countries and really blow up into something that would be economically disastrous for all of the stakeholders involved. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you. Great to have you with us, as always. Will Ripley in Taipei there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Sydney is emerging from four months of strict lockdown. Fully vaccinated residents of Australia's biggest city can now finally visit pubs, restaurants and shops and reunite with loved ones. Angus Watson has the latest. Joy, relief and some apprehension in Sydney, Australia, the country's largest city coming out of lockdown after 106 days on Monday. People allowed to visit family and friends at their homes, go out for a meal at a restaurant, a drink at a bar, go to the gym or get a haircut. For the first time since June, when an outbreak of the Delta variant of coronavirus set in and forced the city into lockdown. That began with just one case. Some months later, over 60,000 cases and over 300 deaths. But as those cases have risen, so has the city and the state of New South Wales's vaccination rate. Now, Sydney is able to open on Monday because it's achieved this goal of 70% of the adult population fully vaccinated. That means people are going out with more confidence now. Yes, there is concern about cases increasing, about pressure on the hospital system, but people who are vaccinated now are able to enjoy some freedoms and be confident in doing so. We were at a pub earlier in central Sydney, the Angel Hotel, which was giving out free beers to celebrate the end of the lockdown. The publican said that that high vaccination rate is giving him the confidence to keep his doors open. I think we're lucky that Australia's actually got a higher vaccination base than what the UK does at the minute, which has been great. People have been jumping on it, which is excellent for us. We're going to hit 80% next week, which is really good. The pub is way better than drinking in your own house. 106 days in my house, there's nothing compared to the pub. Celebrations going on in Sydney there. The next step will be for other lockdown Australian cities to follow, like Canberra, the capital of the country, and Melbourne, Victoria, still locked down, still with coronavirus in the community. That's very different to many other places in Australia. We're living without the virus. They've closed off their borders to the states that do have it. The next step for Australia will be for vaccination rates across the country to catch up to one another. That's the first step. The next step will be for international borders to open. Angus Watson, Sydney, Australia. 
A source close to Prince Andrew tells CNN it's no surprise that British police have confirmed that they will take no further action after conducting a review sparked by a Jeffrey Epstein accuser. One alleged victim has filed a civil lawsuit in the United States accusing the prince of sexual assault. Prince Andrew has always denied the accusations. Three economists working at American universities have just won the Nobel Prize in economics. David Card, Joshua Angrist and Guido Mbenz share the prize. The committee says their research improved our ability to answer key causal questions that have greatly benefited society. Okay, still to come here on First Move, life in the fast lane. We meet the company that says it can fully charge any electric vehicle in 15 minutes. And Colombia's president says debt rules mean he can either tackle COVID or the climate crisis, but not both. And he joins us shortly. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks under pressure as we begin a new trading week. Bond markets in the United States are closed for a holiday, but no holiday from the inflationary pressures building worldwide due to rising energy prices and power shortages. Morgan Stanley warning we could see a hit to profits this earnings season as companies wrestle with supply chain issues and higher inflation due in part to that jump in energy costs. Goldman Sachs, meanwhile, trimming their U.S. growth forecast for this year and for next two for similar reasons. In the meantime, Merck set to open around 1% higher. The company is officially asking U.S. regulators to OK its antiviral drug to fight COVID. The pill has been shown to decrease mild to moderate symptoms of the disease. A U.S. decision to approve the medication for emergency use could come within weeks. Now, as gas prices surge, a new EV charger is hitting the market, promising a full battery charge for any electric car in just 15 minutes. It comes from the engineering giant ABB, best known for innovative robotics and industrial automation. You'll start to see the new chargers at gas stations and stores over the next few months. ABB is calling it a breakthrough moment for the auto industry at a critical time. Bjorn Rosengren is the CEO of ABB and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you on the show as always. Whenever we talk about climate targets and electric vehicles, the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle always seems to be the charging infrastructure. Is this the game changer we need? Um, yes, good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. I think this is a good step in the right direction. We know timing, uh, charging time is uh, crucial for many car owners. And I think this is definitely one step in the right direction. So it's not just about the fact that you can charge a car in 15 minutes. I believe the technology allows four cars to be charged all at the same time. Yes, it's correct. You can, you know, you can either charge one car uh, extremely fast or you can charge four uh, cars at the same time. So, yeah, it's, it's very flexible uh, as, a, as a charger. Yes. Oh, so if you have four, char- four cars charging at once, it slows down the charge time. What's the charge time if there's four people trying to charge all at the same time? No, it would be a fourth of the time. So, Actually, it's it's the power that you put in, and it's a 360 kilowatt. So if you have four cars, it's actually 360 divided in four. So that's about the time. I can. Uh, I, I think I, it's I can do the math. maybe important thing <laughs> is that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, I think uh, it is normally to say that uh, these high-speed charging at certain circumstances, for instance, when you're traveling far and you need to do fast charging, is a good time. But I would, the majority of the time, you do slower charging. 
Yeah, so the majority of the time it will probably take an hour, assuming that you've got the four cars all using this. Yeah, I mean, normally you put it in the garage when you come home and you connect the car or you're at work and do it or when you go shopping. And at that time, it's not so crucial. But I think we all feel when we're driving on the motorway and we need to get to a certain place. And I think this is a real crucial. And many car owners feels that this is uh, important and just the time there makes a difference. Yeah, that's the impediment, I think. The broader impediment to purchasing is that, look, if you want to travel somewhere, if you're going to have to stop to charge and it's going to take a long time, it adds a significant amount of time to your journey. So I actually think it's crucial versus being able to charge at home. And you do see these being used in a commercial sense, as I mentioned, in petrol or gas stations, wherever you are in the world. Um, What's the cost of one of these? Uh, about, uh, you mean the cost for a charger? I think that depends on in the different markets. And uh, I think it will be normally some of these uh, uh, big companies that are building out the infrastructure. And then you connect yourself with an iPhone or uh, some other device, and then you charge per kilowatt hour that you are actually using. So, But it's normally significantly lower than any kind of fossil fuels. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I thought that would be the response. Um, it's going to be yeah. available yeah, across um, Europe by the end of this year. And then you're going to make this technology available in Asia and the United States, I believe, in, in 2022. Is that correct? That is correct. Today we are, uh, you know, world leader. We are in many countries, like 88 countries around the world. So U.S. is one of our most important markets. Uh, U.S. is building out the infrastructure I think this is crucial for for that market. And we're really looking forward to an exciting time in the U.S. market. Yeah. And obviously critical to this is going to be how quickly you can ramp up production of these. And I think it perhaps ties to a potential flotation of this part of the business as well. I'm assuming to help raise capital. Can you give us any sense of manufacturing targets and obviously timing on a potential IPO and obviously what that will mean in terms of ramping up? production, research, whatever it is that you need for this part of the business. Yeah, it's correct. This is, of course, a key technology for AVB mm. as we do electrifying the world. But we see this also as the market is growing with such a speed. It is, of course, important that we get the right focus. We also need to be able to invest in more uh, in acquisitions, uh, building out the infrastructure. And I think capital is important. So we decided to uh, or decided we are deciding to, and hopefully to be done during the first half of next year. Fantastic. I mean, you have so many exciting things going on at ABB, I know, but I do want to get your sense of the pressures that you're seeing from from input costs. To what degree those pressures, you're able to pass those increased prices of, of inputs onto consumers, and particularly given some of the challenges, and we've been talking about it already on the show in, in China, and, and the power shortages there, so what you're seeing for your business over there too. Can you just give us a sense? I think it is challenging time for mm. every industry today. I mean, if it's commodity prices, if it's a logistic chain, uh, I think everything is under constraint and the demand is, as you, as you all know, is very strong all over the world. So I think many companies, including ABB, is having a lot of challenges on, on this side. Uh, on the other hand, I think as further time goes, we're getting used to these levels and our production facilities are coping up with, uh, with the volumes and uh, we are adding capacity and uh, 
I think, yeah, yeah, in the long run, we'll we'll get over the problems. Yes, challenging, but you're managing it. I think that's the message. I think, How long? So I think we all need to do it. And then in the end, yeah. you know, we have a lot of customers around the world who needs a product and we need to get it out. Do you think it's going to be a problem throughout 2022 as well? Or do you think by then we'll have worked out some of these logistical and supply chain issues? You know, I, I, I think we will definitely see it during next quarter also, but also probably some quarters going forward, especially when it is, the, you know, related to semiconductors, which is the really constraining the market uh, right. uh, today. So it will take time to build up capacity there, I think. So fantastic to have you on. Exciting technology, and we look forward to seeing it at uh, petrol and gas stations near us all. Bjorn Rosengrove, CEO so of TBB. Thank you, sir. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And we do have a weaker open, as predicted, a bit of a hangover after a winning week on Wall Street last week. The best week, in fact, for the Dow in three months. Investors still trying to figure out, I think, what to make of Friday's labor letdown. If you remember, the U.S. created some 300,000 fewer jobs than expected in September. But there were positive revisions to the prior two months, some arguing that the numbers weren't that bad when factoring the seasonal factors. And of course, the revisions I mentioned, the bottom line is that the report probably wasn't as bad enough for the Federal Reserve to delay a decision to cut stimulus due early next month. A key decision, not only, of course, for the United States. All stocks are early session gainers as Brent crude rises to over $84 a barrel. Energy prices have now risen for seven straight weeks. Great news, it seems, for oil exporting giant Russia. The ruble is now the best performing emerging market currency as traders bet on continued higher energy prices. Investors also sinking cash into the Colombian peso, the second best performing EM currency in recent weeks. Colombia, another large energy exporter. And on that note, the International Monetary Fund's annual meeting kicks off in Washington this Monday, driving the agenda of fears that the global recovery may have stalled. Colombia's president is warning many countries are struggling under huge new debts that they took on because of the pandemic. He says only the world's richest nations can afford to pay for vaccines, fiscal stimulus and a green recovery. And he argues that the way we measure debt needs to change to prevent a major crisis. And joining us now is Ivan Duke Marquez. He is the president of Colombia. So fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we have much to discuss. Hello. We have much to discuss, but I do want to start by asking you how the country's doing. You've had to take some very tough decisions because the pandemic has put immense pressure on, on your people, on families and on the jobs market, too. How are you doing? Well, thank you so much, Julia. It's a great honor for me to be here in your program. And maybe what I'll say is that there are very good news uh, for the Colombian economy. We're expected to grow this year above uh, 7 percent. And that will be the highest growth in, in this uh, century. When we look at previous recession cycles, for example, 20 years ago, we had a, we had a reduction in our growth of minus 4.5. In the year 2000, we grew 2.5. In this case, we had a reduction on our growth last year of 6.8. But this year, we're going to grow above 7. That means that this is not just a reboot, but this is a real recovery. We're also recovering jobs and we're getting pretty close to have uh, pre-pandemic employment uh, statistics. And something that I also want to highlight is that in the last three years, non-mining uh, and energy foreign direct investment has spiked almost 200%. So we're seeing the economy recover at a very good pace. And we hope that we are going to establish 
uh, a long-term growth that is going to be above 4%. So all this is leading us to have a real economic transition and also based on new uh, sources of income like renewable energies, five-generation highways, among many others. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, innovation and infrastructure because I know they're key priorities for the government. Um, you're going to meet the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, in Colombia next week. Um, does one of the top priorities, first and foremost, and when we'll talk about everything else, more access to vaccines from the international community for countries like your own? Does that have to be a priority? Because that's key to recovery, too. Indeed, indeed. And now uh, we are supposed to be today at 43 million doses that have already been uh, delivered in Colombia. Our goal is to have 48 million by the end of this month. And we're going to meet our target, which is by the end of the year to have 70 percent of all the Colombian population that are fully vaccinated. Obviously, we have been uh, having access, but obviously we have seen delays in some of the pharmaceuticals. Hopefully now, we're on schedule. We have a very good stock. So this allowed us to accelerate the program. And I should say this goes hand in hand with the recovery. As we have been accelerating vaccination, we have been also accelerating the economic recovery. So they go hand in hand. Now, the, the challenge for the next months and obviously for next year are booster shots and having all the access. So I think having a better multinational, multilateral coordination on the accessibility is something that is going to be crucial, not only for us, but for the whole world, because we have seen that more than 40 countries have not even applied the first doses. So I mm. think we all have to work to that. I mean, you are incredibly eloquent, I think, on the world stage of helping people understand balancing competing forces, whether it's trying to um, diversify your economy away from a, a reliance on, on fossil fuels like oil, for example, but also, and I know you've got targets of your own, improving sustainability, improving the green profile of the country at the same time. And, and you've said, look, there needs to be changes in the way that countries like Colombia are viewed in terms of their deficit, in terms of their debt, because you simply can't have done all the spending that you've done to fight the pandemic and also transition the economy and make the investments required to improve your carbon footprint. Help us understand what needs to change in terms of how you're viewed and, and what have your creditors said about the prospect of debt relief and perhaps shifting some of that investment spending out of the deficit calculations? I think that's a great question, Julia, because when we have seen these statistics that have come out from the IMF, we know that on average, the world has now an indebtedness level around 90% of right. GDP. So this means that we have to still deal with the pandemic, continue doing social investment, closing the social gaps, but also accelerating the carbon neutrality process that has to be reached towards 2050. So what I'm saying is we need to, to be aware that if we really want to accelerate what comes out of Glasgow in the COP26, we have to ensure that we're not going to have competition between on what goes to education, what goes to healthcare, what goes to infrastructure, and what goes to climate action. So in that sense, what we have proposed for middle-income countries is that for a period of time, we could create funds that are aimed to accelerate that energy transition and that they are not counted on the, on the permanent fiscal deficit calculation. That could accelerate the investment and not to have that clash or that conflict between every single penny and where does it go to. So I think that's something that is important. But also we have said 
that for poor countries, it is crucial to have not only debt relief based on climate action objectives that are reached, but also debt swaps for some of the countries. I think raising this intelligent green financing is something that is going to be very important for us to reduce our carbon footprint, but at, more, and, and at the same time, to able to accelerate the energy transition and reaching carbon neutrality. So the essence is, let's have some funds that are aimed to that acceleration, and let's put them out of the deficit for a certain period of time. Yeah, I mean, as as you have, and if you said you are recovering, and it's a, it's a strong recovery in the face of great challenges, um, there's also been a rise in poverty in the nation, as we've seen in many places around the world. There's also been a rise in violence, as we've seen around the world as well. And, and your government has come under criticism for your commitment to the FARC uh, peace agreement. What's your sense? And is the government committed to that? Because, again, this is going to be something I'm sure that you're talking to the US Secretary of State and how the two countries can continue to work together on this. Are you still committed to the agreement or... Um, is amnesty for some of these people perhaps a flawed concept in your mind? I think you have raised three important issues. So let me begin with the social safety net. And yeah. basically what we have in our administration is that we have been able to duplicate the amount of beneficiaries from conditional and non-conditional cash transfers in order to prevent the poverty rate to, to climb. And something that is also important, we have extended what we call the basic income for the poorest of the poor that is going to be uh, taking place until December 2022. With that, we expect to be at pre-pandemic levels in 2022, maybe by the month of May. So that's issue number one. Issue number two that you raised. Yes, we have dealt with with, uh, with violence, that's true. And it is a global phenomenon. But what's interesting is that we have reached the lowest homicides rates almost in 40 years. And that demonstrates that we have a positive evolution. Nevertheless, we have to work on security every day. And on the peace agreement, Julia, some of, uh, there's a great phrase that I always like to use that was uh, used maybe by Mark Twain and later on by a politician called Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which is, in politics, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not to your own facts. So, so when we look at the facts in Colombia, we have not only increased the investments implementing the, the agreement, but the regional focus development plan that are the cornerstone of this process, we basically inherit just two of those programs and we just reached 16, which is 100% of the programs that are already designed and they're mobilizing resources in different regions of Colombia. And that's why we have reached the highest land titling granting in Colombia and something that is also important, the implementation of the biggest tertiary roads program among many others. So I think we're not only committed, but we're committed, but we still always claim that there's truth, peace, reparation, and non-repetition. How do we achieve that? Working with all the institutions and guaranteeing that there's no impunity for crimes against humanity. Can you do more for these rural communities? As you've said, you have stepped up the program, you're working on it, and I appreciate that, but do you believe you can do more? And what do you want from the United States to help you with this? Indeed, we have to do much more. But but something is important, Julia, that this is a process that was designed to be implemented in the first in, in 15 years. So we just passed the first five. And the ombudsperson in Colombia made a very important report about the progress. And what he said is that in my administration, there has been more implementation work being done than in the first 20 months of the previous administration once 
the agreement was signed. So I think we're in a good pace. Can we do more? Yes, we can. And that's why we're trying to accelerate the investments in those areas that have been historically affected by violence and by poverty. And on the U.S. support, we have uh, met with Dalip Singh last week in Bogota. We also met with the people from DFC. And I think what, what's important is that the initiative that has been launched by President Biden called the B3W, Build Back Better World, is something that can bring a lot of investment, generate employment, and they can also have an effect of what we call French shoring, which is to establish industries in our countries that are close to the American market that can also generate jobs, generate opportunities, and trigger economic growth. Yeah, it's all part of your, your focus, I know, on innovation, on sustainability, and sort of reshaping um, the economy and the environment for the country as well. Um, I do want to get your view very quickly um, because I know part of the financial pressures that the country has faced is that you've taken many Venezuelan refugees. And I know you also made an offer to try and help with the Afghanistan situation as well, which was clearly welcomed by the world community. Can I ask where you are on that, whether you are going to take Afghan refugees and um, what your view on this is, not just for, for Colombia, of course, but as a world? That question. Let me yeah. take that, that opportunity to show you this. This is the TPS card that we're going to provide to 1.8 Venezuelan migrants in Colombia. We have already 1.4 million out of 1.8 that have already registered with biometrical information. With this, we're going to grant uh, 1 million before the end of this year, 800,000 in 2022 in the first semester. So this will allow the migrants not only to access to a bank account, to buy a home, but also to have uh, employment, formal employment in Colombia. So this is a way that we have to manage this, not only with fraternity, but in an intelligent way. And this is going to allow us to have a better management of those 1.8 that were already in Colombia, they were, but they were invisible. So we're making them visible, we're granting rights, but something that is important is that we have to mobilize the resources from the world community. Just to give you an idea, Julia, when we look at the amount of uh, dollars that have been granted per migrant, in the Syrian crisis, we're talking about more than $3,000. When we look at what has happened in Sudan, it's $1.6,000. In our case, we don't get to even to $300. So we're making a, a big fiscal effort. And what we have talked with the United States and other countries is that we need to accelerate the disbursements because yes, we have pledges and commitments, but having an acceleration of those resources helps us to enhance uh, this policy. And yeah. on the Afghanis, yeah. we, we have said uh, publicly that, yes, we, we, were, we, we offered to the United States that we could have approximately 4,000 Afghani citizens that would be in Colombia in a temporary way while they resolve their migration status in the United States. I think for logistical and cost reasons, the United States has identified that it's much better to have them in the U.S. soil. But nevertheless, we made the offer because this right. is a humanitarian right. sentiment. We know there are people suffering and we want to be part of the solution. Yeah. And whether it's vaccines or refugees, the world has to stand together, sir. Thank you for your time. We have much more to discuss. So I would like to reconvene at a later date, please, and then get you back on. Um, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, even Duke Marquez, uh, the president of Colombia. So thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. The International Monetary Fund World Bank autumn meetings are now underway, not on the agenda, but clearly a topic. Accusations against the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, that she pressured World Bank staffers to manipulate data in China's favour in 2017. Claire Sebastian, the investigation's ongoing. Does she survive? That's the big question, Julia. There seems to be a concerted effort to try to resolve uh, this investigation before we get into those autumn meetings and time is running very short. They start tomorrow. So what we know is that the IMF Executive Board has been reviewing this report that was commissioned by the World Bank, done by law firm Wilma Hale. They conducted an, a large number of meetings last week, including with Ms. Georgieva and with lawyers from Wilma Hale. They had a very long one on Friday. And then very unusually, they had another one on Sunday, which you know I'm told is extremely unusual uh, to, to happen at the IMF. So again, this concerted effort to try and wrap this up before it starts to overshadow these autumn meetings. The board itself has said that they made further significant progress on Sunday. They, they, they hope to, to conclude this very soon. And meanwhile, Ms. Georgieva herself continues to refute the allegations against her uh, in a statement provided by her lawyers to the board. She says that the Wil- Wilma Hale actually misrepresented the circumstances and conditions of her, of her interviews that she did for the investigation, that she was told she was not the subject of a review and that she was promised confidentiality. And one more potential wrinkle in this, Julia, is a potential division between the countries on the IMF board. We're told that the French finance ministry, uh, they will support her. We don't know yet what the U.S. will do. And they are the largest shareholder. Mm-hmm. Watch this space. Claire Sebastian, thank you for joining us on that. All right, coming up next, the final frontier on hold. Why there was a last minute snag in William Shatner's trips to space. Welcome back to First Move. For years, he thrilled audiences as the captain of the Starship Enterprise. Now William Shatner is boldly going where he'd never gone before. That is space, the final frontier. The Star Trek icon tweeted this photo a little earlier saying, aren't we all adorbs? Wowzers. His Blue Origin flight has been delayed until Wednesday due to bad weather. At the age of 90, Shatner will be the oldest person yet to launch into space. And CNN's Erica Hill asks how he's feeling and if he's now a true astronaut. I feel comfortable, but I'm also uncomfortable. I'm, I'll be very happy when we go up and, and we're in weightlessness and we know we're safe because everything else should be all right. And we have that moment of inspiration, which I feel will be there when we're looking into uh, the vastness of the uh, of the universe. Well, I can't believe he's 90, but he'll be that character in miscongeniality for me. So I hope when he's up there, he calls for world peace. Yes, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at Chasley CNN. I hope I'll be back tomorrow. See you then. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.